Pindar rightly called the Battle of Artemisium the place where the sons of Athens laid the shining cornerstone of freedom, for courage is the beginning of victory. Plutarch on the fame of the Athenians. Ahoy crew, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. This time around, we have arrived at episode 37, which is part two of our look at the naval battle of Artemisium. Last time, we examined the build-up to this battle. We saw why the Greeks chose the Artemisium beaches as their naval base. We saw how the scout ships there were embarrassed by a squadron of Persian ships, and then we saw how a massive Hellespontor storm cut the Persian fleet by one-third of its original strength. Even after the losses of such a magnitude, though, we ended last time while Themistocles surveyed the Persian fleet that was amassing across the channel from Artemisium, a Persian fleet that was still three times the size of the allied Greek fleet. Now, I felt it was important to go through all of the what you could call preliminary pieces last time, because it really gives us a better appreciation for the situation that each navy was in once they had reached the point of actual battle. We discussed geography a lot last time, and it will factor in again here today. But if you would like to consult a map to help get your bearings, to get a better sense of the events that we'll be covering today, do check out the show notes page for this episode. There's a high-resolution custom map with relevant information handy there. On to the episode for today, though. We open with what you might call a side story, but it is still relevant to the development of a complete picture about Themistocles, the man. It's also somewhat of a commentary on the fragile nature of alliances in general. The Greek fleet had retaken their position on the beaches of Artemisium, as we have seen. The coalition watched the Persian fleet continue to grow on the more spread-out beaches of Aphetai across the channel. They, as they did so, they must have all grown increasingly disheartened with the appearance of each additional Persian ship. We saw in the last episode how the Greek fleet fled Artemisium the first time, and I tend to agree with the assessment um, that was shared by a longtime listener and supporter that he thinks the Greeks fled their beaches this first time because the other leaders amongst the coalition forced the retreat, if you will. Themistocles probably went along with this plan just so he could do what he was able to keep the fleet together as one unit. Then when the Hellespontor storm showed up, he seized the opportunity to convince them all to return to Artemisium once again. This assessment of why the fleet fled and what Themistocles did to try to bring them back, it's bolstered by what Herodotus tells us took place once they did return and once they saw the Persian fleet amassing against them. I'm going to read the few lines from Herodotus here, just because his phrasing is great, even in translation. Now, remember, this is when the Greeks have returned to Artemisium, and they see all of the Persians coming to Aphetai. 
Herodotus writes, quote, At this time, the Hellenes who had come to Artemisium saw the many ships that had put in at Aphetai, and the whole place packed full of troops. And since the current condition of the barbarians was quite contrary to their expectations, they grew frightened and deliberated about fleeing from Artemisium back toward mainland Hellas. Now, he goes on to add that Eurybiades, who was the Spartan commander and was technically the head of the Greek coalition, Eurybiades was all for fleeing a second time. The Euboeans, who were native to the island where Artemisium was, they understandably lobbied for the coalition to stay and to defend them, or at least to stay long enough so that they could gather their families and flee the scene. Now, not even this plea swayed Eurybiades, but thankfully for the Euboeans, they had a second option of turning to Themistocles with the same plea. Now, whether Themistocles would have paid heed to their plea, no matter what bargaining chips they brought to the table with them, is an interesting question to ponder. Thankfully for the Euboeans, they did have that bargaining chip to bring to the table, an incentive fund, if you will, that helped ensure the cooperation of the Athenian leader. We read that they gave 30 talents to Themistocles in exchange for his help in keeping the coalition fleet at Artemisium. How much was 30 talents, you ask? It's, of course, difficult to accurately generalize about the relative values of currency, especially back in ancient time frames, so the best approach that we can take is to compare this amount with a typical wage as we see evidence of daily or monthly wages in records from the time. A talent was a weight measurement, the weight of the silver or the gold coins in question, but nevertheless, taking that into account, here's what we can gather from some back-of-the-napkin calculation. One talent, if we're talking about a talent on the attic standard, was made of 6,000 drachmas, or 60 minas. So one talent was about 57 pounds weight, or 26 kilograms, of precious metal. This was often in the form of minted coins, but not always. Now, it's hard to say because inflation is always a factor when we're talking about currency. Um, the changes in wage structure due to various wars as well, especially down toward the time frame of the Peloponnesian War. But here is the bottom line comparison that I found in one commentary on the matter. Quote, a talent was a huge sum, enough to pay the wages of a crew of a 200-man warship for a month, or 20 years' wages for an individual worker, making one drachma per day for 300 days each year. So factor that in, and in my view, it's more likely that a talent in 480 BCE, when the Battle of Artemisium is taking place, it's more likely that a talent then would have been worth even more than this comparison allows for, due to the inflation that we mentioned a moment ago. So then, Euboea just hands Themistocles 30 talents, probably enough to pay the wages of over 30 trireme crews. And they say to him, do whatever you have to do, just keep the fleet here. 
And really, what did they have to lose? This is a lot of money, yes, but if the fleet abandons them, then Euboea would have just become another one of the vassal states of Xerxes and Persia. So if that is the one thing to be avoided, 30 talents is a small price to pay. Now, it did help Themistocles a slight bit that nobody else at Artemisium knew that he had received this money as a bribe. That being the case, he turned around and he took five talents and just handed them to Eurybiades as another bribe, a pass-on bribe. He took three talents and he gave them to Adimantos, who was the commander of the Corinthian ships that had also threatened to abandon Artemisium. Themistocles, as you might suspect, plays up his generosity. He says, quote, Surely you will not leave us, since I shall give you a gift more generous than that which the king of the Medes would send to you if you deserted the allies. The ploy worked, probably because Themistocles was right that Xerxes wouldn't have really richly rewarded Greek Medizers. Um, it also worked, though, because the Spartans and the Corinthians thought that this money was coming straight from the coffers of Athens. They viewed it as a show of good faith and commitment to the cause. Now, if they had known that Themistocles paid out eight talents that he'd gotten from Euboea, but he kept 22 more for himself, they might have felt a little bit differently. But, alas, Themistocles was wily as ever, and he managed to pull off this plot to keep the coalition together at Artemisium. Herodotus begins the next paragraph in his histories, quote, And so they stayed at Euboea and fought a battle at sea. Of course, Herodotus writing with the style that he did were not quite to the battle yet. Instead, he recounts that not long after the Greek coalition had ironed out their resolve to stay at Artemisium, not long after this, a sea diver of great renown, a man named Scylias, just emerged from the sea onto Artemisium Beach with grave news to give to the Greek command. We'll get to that news momentarily, but as Herodotus tells it, this man Scylias was the world's greatest diver. He'd helped the Persians recover treasure from some of the wrecked ships that had been struck by the Hellespanter off Mount Pelion. So the story goes that he decided to desert from Persia's camp and to bring this warning to the Greeks. Apparently, he dove into the channel at Aphetai and swam nine-plus miles south to the beach at Artemisium. Herodotus goes so far as to claim that, quote, he dove in and did not come up again until he reached Artemisium, a superhuman feat even for the world's greatest diver. This characterization gives modern historians a little bit of pause, and then it opens the door to many different opinions, which is par for the course. Perhaps he used a primitive snorkel. Such things were known in ancient times. Perhaps he swam underwater only until he had escaped Persia's um, visible notice, and then he breached the surface, and maybe he swam the remaining distance where he could actually breathe. Or maybe he just escaped the Persian camp in a small rowing craft of some kind and escaped their notice. 
who knows, ultimately. Especially since the more important issue here is the news that he brought with him to Artemisium. This world-famous sea diver told the Mystocles and Eurybiades, among others, and this is direct from Herodotus, he told them, quote, The Persians detached 200 ships from the fleet and sent them to sail around the outside of Skiathos, so that the Hellenes would not see them, and then to sail around Euboea and up through the Euripos. This way the Persians could trap the Hellenes, since the ships coming by this route would block off their retreat from behind while the rest of the fleet attacked them from the front. Undoubtedly, this news would have struck a major blow to the morale of the Greek leaders. Remember that Euboea is a long, narrow island with that small channel on the landward side, the narrowest part known as the Euripos. What the Persians were aiming to do, in essence, was to outflank the Greek fleet by sailing around this island, enabling them to attack from both sides, not to mention that they could also land troops behind the Spartans and their fellow soldiers at Thermopylae, if they so wished. As grave a situation as this put the Greeks in, there was silver lining in the fact that Scylias had deserted and had brought them this news. They could have never received the news, and that would have put them in a much worse position. The problem once they did receive the news, however, was how to react to it. The Persians planned to round Euboea, but there was no telling quite how long it would take them to round the island and get into position to attack the Greeks from Euripus. At the risk of foreshadowing that's too on the nose, I'll pull a line from Barry Strauss's wonderful book about Artemisium and Salamis. He writes, quote, Clever though it seems, the Persian plan betrays a landlubber's mentality. It was one thing to turn an enemy's flank on a level plain, quite another to do so along Euboea's windswept and treacherous eastern coast. There was the forewarning that came courtesy of Scylias too, but nonetheless, I personally think that Themistocles may have felt the same way about the inherent risks that Persia was taking with this flanking maneuver. If it worked out, then it would look like a stroke of brilliance. But Themistocles was the sea power thinker, and it's doubtful whether Persia had a maritime mind to match his. Knowing that Persia had taken a risk, Themistocles managed to convince his fellow Hellenes that they could ill afford to remain observers, to wait and see where the Persian squadron popped up and when. Knowing that the Persian contingent had been dispatched only the day before, Themistocles felt that the Greeks had to seize the opportunity to go on the offensive and hope that the element of surprise was on their side. His argument won the day in the Greek camp, although he did have to debate a contingent who almost convinced the Greeks to split their force and send part of them to confront the 200 Persian ships. It's a little hard to predict how that decision would have played out, but it could well have ended the Greek resistance for good. They probably would have been much more vulnerable on both fronts had they elected to split their forces. Either way, 
as we stand, the Greeks have decided to go on offense, and it's now time for us to turn to the battle and to the tactical matters inherent therein. In last episode, we alluded to the fact that the Artemisium Channel is between 9 and 10 miles wide. So the first point of note in relation to battle tactics is that this is the amount of space that the two fleets had to work with. Practically speaking, this is quite a bit of room for a fleet of triremes to maneuver in. So in that sense, the Persians held an advantage thanks to their superior numbers and the room needed to take advantage of their numerical strength. The second major point of note for me here is the relative experience and makeup of the fleets. The Persian fleet was what I've been calling a mishmash fleet, made up of Ionian Greeks, other Greeks, Egyptians, Phoenicians, and others yet still. The point within that reality is that some of these subsets were more experienced at naval warfare than others, but none of them had really worked together or trained with an eye toward a coordinated campaign against a foe who had everything to fight for. You could argue that the Greeks were similarly diverse and inexperienced. They had a fleet comprised of ships from various city-states, none of whom had fought together in this concerted way in the past. The Athenian ships made up the bulk of the fleet, and these men and ships had never seen battle before. They'd only trained for the two summers since the windfall from the Lorium mines had made the construction of the Athenian fleet even possible. But, despite their lack of battle experience, the Greeks did have a shared culture, a shared language, and they more or less deferred to the insightful leadership of one man with a vision of how to approach the battle, that being Themistocles. Now let's get into the plan that Themistocles put into action. Since Greece had a numerical disadvantage, and since they could have been surrounded if they approached the engagement as a standard line-on-line -line affair, Themistocles opted to make the first move, and to catch Persia off guard as much as was possible. The Persians planned to wait however long it took for the 200-ship contingent to round Euboea, and then signal to the main fleet that they were ready to attack from the south. It seems pretty clear that Themistocles intuited the Persian plan, so after he convinced the other city-states to go with his plan, they set to put it into action. Maybe this involved some pre-battle libations or other prayers, but it assuredly involved removing the masts and sails from the ships, as these were typically removed prior to engagements, engagements that were foreknown anyways. The day after Themistocles received news of the Persian plan to outflank them, the morning was taken up with these preparations. Now, typically, in a trireme engagement like this, both fleets would launch the ships early in the day if they could. Nighttime was a time when most trireme commanders hoped to be safely beached somewhere. They would travel at night if necessary, but battle by moonlight was almost unheard of and would have been a chaotic affair if it was even possible at all. So then, the Persians wouldn't have suspected a thing as the day wore on into the afternoon 
and the Greek ships still lay in their sandy berths at Artemisium across the channel. At some point later in the afternoon or early evening, the Persians must have questioned their eyesight when watchmen called out that the Greek fleet was putting to sea and heading north toward the Persian base. But their eyesight was not, in fact, compromised. Themistocles had executed his plan by taking control of the timing from the outset. Only a few hours would remain until nightfall, in all likelihood, but the Persians were what you might call overly confident, given the still sizable advantage that they held. Even with the 200 ships still en route around the island, the Persians had over 700 ships at Artemisium against the 270 of the Greeks. Given this matchup, the Persians happily put to sea and rode south to meet the Greek fleet in the channel. Themistocles had narrowed the window of time for the engagement, so we couldn't see that as point one to the Greeks. There would be no protracted engagement where the Persian numbers might begin to sway the outcome. Point two for the Greeks is a less important one, but it highlights an issue that will play a continuing role as we consider the story. Herodotus describes the beginning of the engagement like this. He says that, quote, With pride and contempt, the Persian fleet surrounded the Hellenes in a circle with their ships. Point two comes with the next sentence, though, where he says, quote, Now the Ionians, who were benevolent toward the Hellenes, were unwilling to join in the fight, and thought it a grave misfortune to watch them being encircled, and to realize that not one of them was ever going to return home again. So weak did the cause of the Hellenes appear to them at the time. So, sure, it looks bleak to be immediately surrounded by a force about three times as large as yours, but at least a handful of Ionian Greeks in the enemy's line were sympathetic to the Greek cause. Others were not, though, and they competed to see who could sink or capture the first Athenian ship. They lusted after the prizes that Xerxes would give out to those who drew first blood. From the detail that Herodotus includes, it seems that the Persian fleet fanned out and was able to quickly begin to enclose the Greek ships. If each fleet was in a line formation, then numbers would almost dictate that this is how it played out. Again, Themistocles seems to have anticipated that this would happen, and he again had a plan for how to handle the numerical disadvantage. We talked a bit on our Trireme 101 episode about the major maneuvers that Triremes would tend to carry out, especially in the Peloponnesian War, which we will get to in good time. One of those maneuvers was the Diek Plus, which was probably the most common. This is where one Trireme or a group of them would break through a gap in the enemy's line. Then they would turn and ram the enemy from the rear, or perhaps just shear off an opposing ship's oars if no clear opening to ram presented itself. This maneuver, of course, depended on the enemy giving you a gap in their line to exploit, so speed and maneuverability were key to executing the Diek Plus. Perhaps if the sizes of each fleet were more equal, the Greeks could have attempted to carry out these traditional maneuvers, darting through gaps in the Persian line where possible, 
taking on their enemy at the weakest points. The reality for Themistocles, though, was that the Persians had a force so much greater than the Greek fleet that they quickly enclosed each end of the Greek line and began to surround them entirely. This left them extremely vulnerable, as you might imagine, but so far Themistocles had expected things to play out this way. Knowing that his fleet was much smaller and comprised of ships that were heavier than many of the Persian ships, he devised a way to force the engagement into an artificially narrow place where the Greeks could take advantage of their strength and diminish the advantage the Persians held by virtue of their superior numbers. The Greek method for reducing their vulnerability and drawing the Persians into narrow confines is a method that comes, well, straight out of nature. Just like a porcupine or a hedgehog would roll up into a ball when on the defensive, presenting a prickly exterior that is hard for an attacker to penetrate, so the Greek fleet morphed their line-ahead formation into a circle. In a sense, they circled the wagons, and this maneuver is typically known as the kyklos, meaning literally just a circle or a circular object. It's feasible that on a predetermined signal from Themistocles' flagship that the Greek ships in the center of their line maintained position, facing the Persian navy directly, while the outer ends of the Greek line began to back water and steer the ends of their line to meet one another. When they had completed this maneuver, the Greeks had formed a floating circle of ships, rams facing outward in every direction, presenting no vulnerable openings for Persian triremes to penetrate. Now, there's a valid question as to whether the 250-plus Greek ships could have formed an effective circle, or if perhaps Herodotus is stretching things to make it sound pretty, Perhaps the circle wasn't fully enclosed, or perhaps they formed two or three smaller circles. We aren't really sure. We know that Herodotus says that they formed one circle out of all the ships that they had at sea. And we do know that this defensive formation was used in other battles in ancient times, so I don't think we really need to lob too many more questions at this discussion. The Greeks forming this defensive circle, the Kyklos, was just step one for them. As Themistocles expected, the Persian fleet wasn't quite as well drilled, or they weren't uniform in the way that the Greek fleet was. The Persian fleet began to surround the Greek circle in what was probably a haphazard fashion. Bold ship commanders looked for points of entry to the Greek circle, other commanders held their ships back either out of just patience or fear, maybe just lack of room to maneuver in general. Regardless of specifics, which Herodotus doesn't share any specifics with us, we know that on the issuing of a second predetermined signal, the Greek formation exploded outward in all directions. I mentioned a moment ago that the Greek ships were heavier at this Battle of Artemisium, we don't actually know this for certain, since we only read in Herodotus that the Greek ships were heavier at the Battle of Salamis later in the war. It is widely assumed that the Greek ships were probably heavier here at Artemisium too, though, 
simply because of the tactic that Themistocles enacted here, this close quarters engagement on the first day of battle. He planned it to work out this way. Heavier ships that were formed into this defensive circle was a way to seize the initiative, essentially. They all sprang outward on that second signal, and they used their weight as an advantage, taking the Persians by surprise and ramming their way through the more numerous, stationary, haphazard Persian fleet before they could react. By the time that this second signal was issued and the fleet exploded outward, night was probably beginning to fall. So the Greek ships basically broke through the Persian navy that had encircled them, they had a head start, and they wound their way back to their beach base, flush with a victory in the first engagement of the battle. Themistocles really had engineered the perfect scenario, where the outnumbered Greek fleet could undertake an engagement on their own terms, dictating the timing and confrontation between themselves and the Persians. Complete control of factors like these, and the foresight to understand what they will be, and the patience to plan them out in the way that's most advantageous to their own forces, this is what sets great commanders apart throughout the centuries. And this first day at Artemisium is a prime example of why Themistocles stands apart as one of the greatest naval minds of ancient times. It's useful for me to think of this first engagement as being an experiment, almost. The Greek fleet, as Themistocles had built it up, had never really engaged an enemy in numbers before this engagement at Artemisium. They'd practiced and they drilled, sure, but they really had no idea what skills the various Persian contingents brought to the table, if they had ships with any large advantages or unique advancements, by placing this engagement late in the day and keeping the fighting to close quarters, Themistocles gave his fleet a chance to test their mettle with a lower risk than would have been present in a true line-to-line -line engagement. So perhaps he knew that the Greek ships were heavier and could take advantage of these close confines. Or perhaps he learned that after the way that the first engagement played out, it seems to me that by forming this defensive circle and springing outward on a set signal, that the Greeks could have done quite well even if their ships weren't as heavy as the Persian ships, all because they had the advantage of surprise on their side. It's hard to say for sure. Ultimately, we read that the Persian fleet lost 30 ships during this first day's engagement. Herodotus doesn't mention any losses at all on the Greek side. So as the respective fleets made landfall in the waning light that evening, the Greek forces would have felt buoyed by their performance. The Persians might have still been wondering what exactly had just hit them. They didn't have too much time to ponder it, since they were greeted by yet another late summer Aegean storm. Safe on their scattered beaches at Aphitai, this storm wasn't as much of a problem as previous storms had been. Not in terms of wrecking ships, at least, but it had a psychological impact on the Persian camp, to be sure. Because I just love the translation of Herodotus that describes this scene in particular, 
I'll read a few lines from it here in place of what would be my bumbling description. So Herodotus writes, quote, Evening fell, and although it was the season of midsummer, heavy rains poured down without stopping throughout the entire night, and violent thunder boomed off Mount Pelion. Corpses and wreckage were carried to shore at Aphetai, collecting around the prows of the ships and chaotically tumbling into and becoming tangled in the blades of the oars. When the Persian troops heard this, they began to panic, expecting that they would be utterly destroyed. So terrible were the adversities that they had by now encountered, for even before they could catch their breath from the shipwrecks and the storm raging off Pelion, they were confronted by a fierce sea battle, and after that by torrential rains and mighty torrents that teemed into the sea with violent thunder. How well Herodotus brings us into the fear that must have consumed the Persian soldiers and oarsmen that night. I like to imagine the Greeks snug in their tents on the opposite shore, sleeping contentedly despite the rain thanks to their laudable performance at sea only hours earlier. This scene is missing one element, though, and that is the 200 ships that Persia had dispatched down the eastern coast of Euboea on the hopes that they could round the island and attack the Greek fleet from the rear. The eastern coast of this island, Euboea, was known to the Greeks as a windswept, rocky, inhospitable stretch of coast, and while the Persians may have known this, they seemed not to care. At this point in the story, their forces have already been severely reduced because of previous storms. Wouldn't you know that this storm that freaked out the Persians at Aphetai carried a more potent punch for the 200 ships sailing around Euboea? Herodotus says that, quote, their end was grim indeed. This end came at the hands of rocks that littered the coasts of Euboea, particularly at a place that the locals called the Hollows. There is some debate about where precisely this spot was, but based on some other ancient writings and the fact that Herodotus says the Persians were sailing out on the open sea, I feel pretty confident saying that the hollows were probably on the southeast coast of Euboea, on the side of the island open to the sea and with little protection from the elements for a fleet sailing south. With only a few words, Herodotus writes that the 200 Persian ships were wrecked on the hollows, concluding, quote, All this was the gods' doing so that the Persian side would be equal to instead of much greater than the Greek side. A noteworthy conclusion from Herodotus here again, and of course it has opened the door to debate about whether the Persians really did have 200 ships sent to outflank the Greeks, or if this was another literary invention after the fact to make the challenge that the Greeks faced seemed to be a bit bigger than it may have actually been. In this particular case, we have even less evidence to examine than we've had in most other cases, so I think we should just move on without dwelling. Whether these 200 Persian ships did indeed wreck, or were even ever sent to begin with, the end result is that when dawn broke on day two, 
at the Artemisium Channel, the fleets on either side of the water were the only ships remaining to settle matters. Actually, scratch that. The Greeks were actually boosted by the arrival of 53 more Athenian ships who had sailed north to reinforce their brethren. They reinforced them with numbers, sure, but the Greeks received an added psychological reinforcement by, at this same time, receiving news of the Persian contingent's fate on the hollows of Euboea the night before. This news would have been a huge boost to Themistocles' strategic planning. Knowing that these 200 ships were off the map meant that Greece didn't have to worry about their lines of retreat being cut off, nor did they have to worry that the contingent might be attacking Attica while the main fleet was up at Artemisium. It freed them up to focus wholly on the remaining Persian fleet, the sole threat at sea. The army at Thermopylae was a different matter, of course, and we'll mention them in due time, but for now let's take an accounting at this stage to just get the lay of the land real quick. The Persian fleet had been reduced to fewer than 700 ships from their initial 1,200 plus, having lost several hundred off Mount Pelion, another 15 to a mistake upon arriving at Aphetai. Now another 200 were lost off the hollows, and 30 during the day's first engagement. Greece, meanwhile, had lost very few ships from their initial 271, now adding another 53 fresh from Attica. This put the Greek fleet at 330 ships, roughly, bringing them close to being outnumbered only 2 to 1 instead of 3 to 1 or even greater, as they had been early on. Progress, to say the least. We are now into the second day of the overall battle, and for this second day we really don't know a whole lot of what went down. The Persians did not care to force another engagement, content to remain at Aphetai and lick their wounds. The Greek fleet undertook a similar course as they had on day one. They sailed out in the late afternoon, limiting the duration of whatever engagement would materialize. We read only that they attacked some ships from Cilicia, destroyed them, and returned to Artemisium when evening fell. It's conceivable that these Cilician ships were a patrol squadron sent to keep watch, or something of that nature. Herodotus doesn't indicate how many Cilician ships were destroyed in this evening raid, but Cilicia had contributed a hundred ships to the Persian force at the outset of their voyage. It's very doubtful that all of these were taken by Greece on the second day of fighting, so we are left to guess about how much damage was inflicted against Persia on day two, Themistocles and his ships returned to Artemisium to beach their triremes for the night once again. Dawn brought day three, the final day of the battle, and this day found the Persians frustrated by their performance and fearful of the wrath that Xerxes might shower on them if he received word of their embarrassing performance on day one and on day two. Fear was perhaps the bigger motivating factor, but even if it was, the Persians did finally decide to take the initiative on day three. 
The Greeks had managed to quell the Persian threat by dictating the timing and the terms on the first two engagements. But by day three, the Persians had grown tired of what they may have perceived as games. They wanted to put the force of their numbers to bear on the full Greek fleet. So, early in the day, the various portions of the Persian fleet put to sea. They formed an enormous line of battle, and they bore down on the Greek line that had remained closer to their beaches at Artemisium. The Greek fleet did once again try to limit the space for the Persian fleet to maneuver. They remained close to the Artemisium shore to prevent Persia's ships from being able to use the Diak Plus maneuver effectively. This time, because the Persian fleet had moved first, the Greeks could control the battle space only by holding back against their own shore until the last moment. There was no escaping, though, that this time there would be a full engagement with little chance to pull any surprises on the Persians to make the third time a charm. The Persian line began to envelop the Greek line. Thanks to the length disparity between them, it was quite simple for the Persians to do so. That is really about as far as the Persian planning got them, and that's where it stopped. At last, the Greek signal blew, and the lines crashed together with the sound of thunder. With this first true engagement, the Persian ships fell into disarray. Their superior numbers actually may have worked against them once they were in the heat of battle here. Herodotus says that, quote, Xerxes' forces failed by reason of their own size and numbers. Their ships chaotically crashed into one another and were wrecked. Because of the confined space that Themistocles had forced into play once again, this result isn't altogether surprising. Combine that with the diversity amongst the Persian contingents and their lack of having fought together, in the heat of battle, things would have been quite chaotic for the Persians and to their detriment. Now, that's not to say that the Greeks fared well in this full engagement on the third and final day at Artemisium. They again outfought what they might have been expected to do, faced with two-to-one odds. But since they were forced into this full confrontation, they did suffer losses that were substantial given their position. The Athenian contingent fared roughly. Half of their ships were disabled during the day's engagement. Including the reinforcements that had arrived that night before, this would mean that about 80 Athenian ships were out of commission by the time that night fell on this third day. Herodotus doesn't give numbers beyond that comment, so we don't know for certain how the battle ended up in terms of casualties or losses, we don't know with precision, at least. We do read that the Egyptian ships acquitted themselves well on the Persian side. They captured five Greek ships, crews and all. On the Greek side, we read that, quote, The Athenians performed best on this day, and of them the best was Cleinias, son of Alcibiades, who was serving in their forces at his own private expense providing 200 men and his own ship. In the end, it appears that this third day of battle saw Greece suffer heavy losses, 
but they managed to inflict similarly heavy losses on Persia. So if we view the three days of engagement as a whole, this battle at Artemisium was a strategic and morale-boosting victory for Greece. They came in not knowing much about the enemy that they faced, but thanks to the strategic brilliance of their leader, they learned much about their enemy while suffering few losses, if any, on those first two days. Even on the third day, when they did have to fight a full battle, they performed admirably against a larger enemy and kept Persia from reaching either Thermopylae or Attica without resistance. Not only that, thanks to storms and to the smart Greek strategy, the Persian fleet had been reduced from over 1,200 down to probably half of that number. At least, that's how modern scholars have interpreted the piecemeal clues that we can glean from our ancient sources. The Greeks don't seem to have brought every ship that they had to Artemisium, by the way. They may have left squadrons behind to patrol or to help reinforce the fleet later on, as it seems that they always planned for their stand in the north to not be their final stand. They hoped to bloody the Persian fleet and slow them down, but it seems like Greece always planned to make a final stand closer to home. Although we don't know a whole lot else about the Battle of Artemisium, we know that the Greek fleet was, in effect, fighting for the survival of Greece, so they had plenty of motivation. In that sense, it was quite similar to the battle going on at Thermopylae, the very pass that the Greek fleet was set up to keep the Persian fleet from reaching. So it's noteworthy to read in Herodotus again that, quote, it just so happened that these sea battles at Artemisium were waged during the very same days as the land battle at Thermopylae. Timing seems to have lined up, and the goals seem to have lined up as well. Both the Greek fleet and the Greek army worked together to keep the Persian forces from gaining access to the avenues that would allow them a way into Greece proper. As the Greek forces and their remaining ships were ashore on the evening after the third day of battle, they received news from a lookout ship that Leonidas and the Spartans at Thermopylae had fallen, despite their valiant stand against the Persian onslaught. Themistocles had been debating whether to remain at Artemisium a while longer, but once he heard that the pass was open to Persia's land forces, the fleet really had no more purpose in staying on Euboea. The sea battle having been a strategic victory, despite the heavy Greek losses, Themistocles must have been largely pleased with how things had played out. True to character, too, he had one more trick up his sleeve, and that is the trick that we're going to end the episode with today. Rather fitting, then, that we began, and we'll end our episode with some classic trickery from Themistocles. It began with Themistocles convening the Greek commanders and sharing with them that he had a scheme whereby he thought he could convince the best of the Persian king's allies to desert. He didn't share the plan. It was one of those just-trust-me scenarios, it sounds like. Um, Themistocles then told the commanders all to have their men light campfires, as they would do on any typical night camped by the ships. 
The Greeks had no intention of bunking down for the night, though. They instead set to work butchering the flocks of the local Euboean people, no doubt doing so on the logic that the fate of greater Greece necessitated it. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, that whole thing. Having received word of the Spartan defeat at Thermopylae, Themistocles planned to remove the Greek fleet from Artemisium under the cover of night. A gutsy move, as we saw earlier that triremes and ancient fleets tended to avoid night travel unless absolutely necessary. This situation qualified, though. So, in the dark, the battle-weary Greeks loaded up the ships with their supplies and their newly provisioned meat that would help the manpower of the fleet refuel themselves. They left the campfires burning to hopefully misdirect the Persian watchmen across the channel. Here is where Themistocles put his plan into motion. Remember earlier in the episode, on day one of the battle, when the Greek ships had formed their defensive circle? We said that a portion of the Ionian triremes in the Persian fleet sat back. Herodotus said that some of them were unwilling to join the fight, they thought it was a grave misfortune to watch their fellow Hellenes being encircled and to realize that not one of them was ever going to return home. It's a bit dramatic, but perhaps this is how the Ionian Greeks viewed the fate of their fellow Greeks from further west. It's a bit eye-opening to reread this line now that we've witnessed the entirety of the battle, No. Themistocles noticed that some Ionians pitied their Greek brethren, and now that they had witnessed firsthand how that pity was misplaced, how the Hellenes had acquitted themselves bravely, and how the Persians now might be the ones who would never return home, Themistocles felt that this presented him an opening to exploit. As the bulk of the Greek fleet was sailing down the Euripus back toward Attica, where they would have to make their final stand against invasion, Themistocles took a handful of the fastest Athenian ships to sail off to sources of fresh drinking water along the northern coast of Euboea, including at Artemisium, where the fleet had been stationed. The Persians would, of course, discover that the Greeks had fled, and they would move south to fill the vacuum, taking over those stretches of coast and using the freshwater sources to replenish their own fleet. Themistocles knew that they would assuredly do this. So at the watering holes, Themistocles deviously carved messages into the rocks, messages in Greek, messages for the Ionian and Carian Greeks who had up until this point fought on the side of Xerxes. Now, we can assume that a fair number of men from these contingents could not actually read they were illiterate, which is a trait that many sailors down through history will share, as we will see over the course of time. Because of the widespread illiteracy, the minority of literate Greek readers would probably have read the messages out loud in the midst of the Persian forces. So let's just picture Themistocles wryly smiling as he sails back to Attica and envisions the effect that this message will have as it spreads through the Persian ranks. The message and the closing commentary from Herodotus is a little lengthy, but I'll read it still, because it is quite enlightening. 
The message that Themistocles inscribed on the rocks at these watering holes read like this, quote, Men of Ionia, you do not do what is right and just by going to war against your fathers and reducing Hellas to slavery. The best thing for you to do would be to come over to our side. But if that is impossible for you, then you should even now at this point assume a posture of neutrality and ask the Carians to do the same. If neither of these options is possible and you are constrained by a yoke so tight that you cannot revolt from it, then when the forces are engaged and you are in the midst of the action, you should deliberately fight like cowards, remembering that you have been born of us and that from the very beginning you have been the source of the hostility between us and the barbarians. This last line is, of course, an allusion to the Athenian assistance to the Ionians during the Ionian Revolt, over 15 years before the progression of events that led to the naval battle at Artemisium, where those events are now being mentioned once again. Now, the message that Themistocles left on the rocks is brilliant, because it was almost guaranteed to result in one of two possible outcomes. Either the Ionians and Carians would indeed desert the Persians and entirely throw their lot back in with their Greek brethren, or, if not, then Xerxes and the others fighting on the side of Persia would hear the message and would immediately begin to doubt the trustworthiness of the Ionians and Carians in the next engagement. It's not as if the Persians were already enjoying the fruits of trust and experience shared amongst their ranks, so introducing more discord in their camp would do quite nicely for the Greeks, even if they didn't get the benefit of reinforcements from their Ionian brethren deserting. Perhaps the discord in the Persian camp would even rise to the level that Xerxes might just keep the Ionians out of future engagements altogether. Themistocles could not possibly have known for sure how this gambit would play out, but to me this move is a masterstroke in psychological warfare that could only have played out well for the Greeks in any of several ways. So, with another plot by Themistocles in the books, I'm going to officially wrap the narrative today with a final quote. We started with one from the poet Pindar, and this final line comes from an inscription that Plutarch tells us was contained in the Temple to Artemis that was constructed at Artemisium in the decades following the battle that took place there. Any Greek who entered the temple would have to thank the Athenians and the other Greek sailors who fought in the battle for the fact that Artemisium wasn't controlled by Persians. To remind them of this, on a marble white pillar in the temple, anyone who entered would read these words. With numerous tribes from Asia's region brought, the sons of Athens on these waters fought, erecting after they had quelled the Mede, to Artemis, this record of the deed. So, between this point, at the conclusion of the Battle of Artemisium and the Battle of Salamis, there really isn't much in the source material to give us a very good idea of how things progressed. 
We'll try to tackle that next time, and then we'll move right into the battle that far and away steals the spotlight as far as the Greco-Persian Wars is concerned. I think we're going to try and tackle Salamis in one episode alone, since there really isn't a clean split point like there was to divide Artemisium into two episodes. Salamis really was a much more concentrated affair compared to Artemisium, which was spread out over the preparation phases and then the several separate days of fighting. So, be sure to tune back in next time for our look at one of the most famous naval battles of the ancient world. To begin wrapping up today, I did just want to drop in a mention of the fact that much of our narrative for Artemisium, and then again for Salamis, has been and will be the straightforward version of events, the one that makes for the most compelling narrative. There are actually many points of debate and discussion buried within the events that we talked about today and that we will talk about into the future, and I just feel like we would have gotten too bogged down, it would have been too unwieldy to try and touch on them as we went, and there's really just far too many to try to get into all of them. These issues are the stuff that academic papers are made of, the things where historians have tried to piece together disjointed phrases or intimations to try to get a better idea of how many ships were actually present on each side of the battle, how the ships would have fought in the engagements, why exactly the Greek ships seem to have been heavier and maybe a little slower than the Persian ships on average, I might get into some of these issues on a member episode, although we'll probably just hit the high points there, but as I said, it's just impractical to try to examine every viewpoint and argument that's out there. I'll mention one in passing today, just because it's related to how the ships would have fought in battle. Now, I've read in several places that various contingents amongst the two fleets may have pursued the battle tactic that we have previously described as being more archaic. They would have loaded the ship with more soldiers and archers and attempted to fight in a more ship-to-ship boarding style, rather than using the trireme alone as a weapon and as a ram. Honestly, I wouldn't at all be surprised if this is what happened at Artemisium, since the Persian fleet was so much more diverse. Perhaps many of the ships tried to ram, but some of them tried to draw up alongside and board and fight hand-to-hand combat. It's really hard to know how the battle would have looked in practice. We read only about the ramming that took place, but I'm sure there was more to it than that. The Greeks seem to have pushed to adopt a ramming strategy more widely, but even then they would have been forced to fight off the boarding maneuvers, and during the heat of a battle, arrows were probably flying around as well. It would truly have been a chaotic scene, not the neat, pretty maneuvers that we might think of if our visual depiction is um, one that came from a Hollywood-style movie depiction that we might have seen. So I always try to keep that in mind when I'm reading about and talking about these battles. Battle is a messy affair. It's not a clean, sleek affair like we tend to think of it. At least it wasn't in ancient times. All right, enough of that for today. 
to well and truly start wrapping things up, let me mention a book that I recently received and read through. It's very relevant to today's discussion, but to naval matters in the ancient Greek world as a whole. The book comes from Pen and Sword Publishers. It's a publishing house over in South Yorkshire, England. So thank you to them for sending a copy hot off the presses. So the book is called Great Naval Battles of the Ancient Greek World. It was written by Owen Rees, who describes himself as a historian and a freelance writer. He's currently pursuing a PhD in Manchester as well. The book is the second one he's written. Um, His first was a look at great land battles in ancient Greece, with this second volume being reserved exclusively for an examination of the naval aspect of Greek warfare. Now, I really enjoyed the book, as you might have guessed. It is square on point for most of what we've been discussing on the podcast here recently. It covers most naval battles from ancient Greece that I could think of, and he does devote a lot of time to battles in this book that most other books just gloss over or don't even mention at all unless they are very detailed. The battles that he discusses include those from the Persian Wars, then the Peloponnesian War, both parts of the war there, and even a few battles that post-dated the Peloponnesian War. If you want to get a full picture of naval warfare in ancient Greece, this book does a very good job highlighting the context of each battle and then arranging the source material that we have into a coherent and useful description of what happened. It's wonderfully sourced. I have found it very useful as a double check to make sure that I didn't overlook any primary sources in relation to specific battles that we've talked about. Now, if you're looking for just a colorfully written narrative history with greater context than the naval battles alone, some of the other books that we've talked about on the podcast might be more up your alley. But if you're looking for a solid examination of the primary sources and a solid discussion of each naval battle with some great commentary on tactics, other relevant factors sprinkled throughout, this book is one that you will want to check out. For my purposes, it's going to be a great reference work to go back to time and again as they continue to study naval warfare in Greece. Beyond that, I do plan to write up a more well-thought-out book review to post on the website. I will include that in the monthly newsletter, so look for that for links to where to purchase this book or for more information if you're curious. To continue wrapping up, we have had two new reviews since last we spoke, so big thanks go to Orville Milk Toast and to Richard E. for their kind reviews. Those are very much appreciated. I don't believe that we've had any new crew members join up since the last episode, but that is quite all right. A hearty expression of gratitude goes out to our current crew members who have remained aboard ship, some of you for quite some time now. I've got a book giveaway in the works, and crew members are all automatically entered into those giveaways So as long as shipping costs to your location isn't prohibitive, 
I will get you all entered into that. I'll share the detailed info for everyone else on how to enter once I have that all set up. I believe that does it for me today, as we have reached the end of our look at Artemisium. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm always free to chat if any of you want to reach out with questions, concerns, suggestions, etc. The website has my email, or feel free to message me on Twitter is probably the best way to connect these days. I don't spend a whole lot of time on Facebook, to be honest. Next time around, we will dive into the Battle of Salamis, so I'm expecting that one to be quite lengthy. We'll see how it goes, but it should be a good one. Thank you for your continued support, everyone, and until next time, fair winds and following seas. Thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>